Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Once upon a time, in Rick and Nick Talk Flicks podcasting, we talked about Quentin Tarantino, and that's where we come to today. Welcome to another round of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. My name is Joel Hoover. My name is Mr. Black, Dave Brooks. Mr. Black. Or Mr. Pink, you're right, that's better. Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink. Reservoir Dogs. That's one I haven't seen. You never saw Reservoir Dogs? No, I haven't seen it. No. <laughs> I should loan it to you. As you chuckle at me. Can you handle a few Effenheimers? Uh, I've heard it's got more than a few. I actually looked it up. As we were getting ready to start this podcast, I was thinking... You know, if we're doing a Tarantino movie, we should probably put out two disclaimers. One, there will be spoilers, because that's what we do. And secondly, there might be swearing, but we're going to try not to, except that one of those movie titles is going to uh, make it impossible, Inglorious Bastards. So that one word, you might hear a lot. But other than that, we had to look up which movie, and I was convinced it would be a Tarantino movie that would hold the record for uh, Effenheimers, usually. And I looked it up, and just in case you're curious, as far as mainstream movies, there's two documentaries that are about cussing. Well, obviously, they're going to use it a lot, and those hold the record. But mainstream movies, do you guys know what it is? What was your guess? You thought Reservoir Dogs. I did think it was Reservoir Dogs. I have not seen it. And by the way, we are talking Tarantino today. I'll give a disclaimer that I've only seen five of his nine movies, which maybe for some is a low proportion. However... Mm -hmm. I have heard stories about Reservoir Dogs enough to think that that was going to be the one that would take the cake. Yeah. But apparently not. It's like something like 25th on the list. What did you think it was? Uh, I would have thought it would have probably been, and not quite Pulp Fiction, which is funny enough, right behind Reservoir Dogs. I would have thought maybe something like, uh, um, oh, uh, not Inglorious Bastards, maybe... Uh, um, Heatful Eight used it a lot. Yes. Um, mm. But no, they're up there. But no, in fact, it was a Martin Scorsese movie. And it, well, I thought maybe Casino then. But no, The Wolf of Wall Street currently holds the record. Something 560-something, I think, uses uh, not a in surprise. the movie. No, not a surprise. <laughs> Coke-fueled, cuss-ranting. Um, but anyway, that's not what the movie's about. Tarantino, yeah. he's got his newest movie out, which I've actually yet to see, but hopefully before the end of this upcoming weekend, I will finally see it, and uh, I will see it in theaters. do want to tell you that Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. That's a great place to go and catch what is currently in theaters. They've got $5 movie nights going on on Tuesdays. You can catch tons of movies there at the theater. It's the Bemidji Theater located on Highway 2, just down from the airport here in Bemidji. That is where I got a chance to go see the premiere of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, at least here in town, the premiere of it. And 
I really enjoyed it. And Dave, I, I know you haven't seen it yet, so we can't really... We'll, we'll do some spoilers. I mean, you, you kind of know, obviously, if you know Helter Skelter, you know what's happening in the background with Manson, and obviously no spoilers there. Yes. Um, However, that is not the centerpiece of true. the story, and it really is important to know that. Although, I, I will make this distinction, too. I talked to a couple of people who I saw the... Uh, who, who I know who I either saw the movie with or talked to after they had gone to see the movie separately. And for some of them, they didn't know the full story of the Manson murders going in. And I think if you if you read a little bit into that story, you'll understand that that back that backdrop much better when it comes to that piece in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like if you come in with even a rudimentary knowledge of it, or at least some some bare bones, you know, this was what went on with this, that's going to really help you with what goes on within the story. Because the center of the story is 1969 Hollywood and these two guys. One is a once prominent TV actor who's now trying to transition into the movies, and his name is Rick Dalton, who is basically washed up. You know, he's and he's trying to figure out what his place is in the new Hollywood. And the guy who's along with him is this easygoing stunt double who's been with him pretty much the whole way. And his name is Cliff Cliff Booth. Um, Rick Dalton's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Cliff Booth is played by Brad Pitt. And it's a great buddy movie with the way that those two work together throughout the movie. And you just kind of see them going about really a couple of days is what it plays out within. Um, but you see them going about this time and then their interactions with the Hollywood around them, the good and the not so good of that time. And it's interesting how that sets the stage for the movie's climax. Yeah, you know, in the 60s, Hollywood was a big of a transition. A lot of people look back at 60s Hollywood as the glamour and the end of the golden age in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of people look at the 60s overall as the decade that the United States lost its innocence. You had assassinations left, right, and center. You had uh, race riots. You had uh, f- finished off, of course, in the summer of 69, the summer of love, with the Manson murders and the trial that lingered into 1970 and Helter Skelter. And it was, yeah, um, things anti- changed. Anti-war protests oh, yeah, going on with Vietnam. Vietnam happening. And you, it just there was so much turmoil throughout the course of the decade. Big time. And, you know, the conventional uh, uh, political riots, you know, the 1968 Chicago Democratic National Convention and the riots there. Yep. It's, you know, the, the 60s, I heard it described to me once, and this is before my time. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a kiddo from the 70s, was uh, the nation, the, the decade that the nation poked itself in the eyeball. So I think that sounds pretty accurate. So yeah, so something along those lines, and uh, then the '70s was kind of a depressing time. So having all of that in the background of a movie like this kind of sets the tone. So it does, and and yet the movie is, you know, again, I, I have to be careful how much I give away here, especially because I am sitting across the table from somebody that, that's okay we're, who has not seen it. But we're lifting the spoiler curtain. It's okay. The movie is more than just a movie experience, Dave. I hope that. When you or if there are other people who go see it, I hope when you go see it that you enjoy the fact that this is more than just a movie experience, which is a lot of what you get when you go see a Tarantino movie. There is like a specific type of movie experience that Tarantino wants you to enjoy when you go see his movies. I hope that that when you see this one, you appreciate that this is also an appreciation of television. 
you're going to get an appreciation of 50s and 60s television and and the quirks of it and the the trends of it and what actors faced with with going from being on TV to being in the movies and vice versa and perceptions of things for instance perceptions of spaghetti westerns within Hollywood that's one thing that gets touched that gets touched on in this movie in a pretty humorous way that's another thing the humor of this movie is it's it's comical at times especially with Leonardo DiCaprio watching his, his watching his character Rick Dalton just losing his mind at times of how do I try to resolve the new Hollywood that's going on around me and then Cliff Booth is just next to him, just breezing his way through it all, although he's got his own stuff to try to figure out. Um, but they're facing up to a new Hollywood in and, and trying to deal with that. But you get an appreciation of television. You get an appreciation of what the movies were like then and, and the different styles of movies. And even when they, they show clips of these movies that Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth appeared in, and they shoot them in such a way that it looks like a 50s movie or a 60s movie with the way that they shoot them and then display the a scene from them on on the movie screen. It's great. But the part that I especially liked and that really surprised me was the way that they used music and oh, the way yeah. that they used the radio as well. Get ready for a big dose of KHJ Los Angeles <laughs> and the boss radio and the real Don Steele as you are watching the movie, like as they are blasting their way through the town playing the radio, or if it's Roman Polanski driving Sharon Tate to the Playboy Mansion, get ready for a music trip that is just awesome as they are driving around through the streets of LA and you're getting the music of that time and the radio of that time. It was just awesome awesome like I have not been able to stop listening to the soundtrack since I went to go see the movie because the music just immerses you into the setting of the place it's Tarantino uses not just visual but sound to really dive you into 1969 Hollywood which he was growing up around at the time and he was pretty young but you get to see what he was growing up around in this time period of what old time, what older time Hollywood before really even Hollywood lost its golden shine and its innocence looked like in the late 60s as it was holding on to what it used to be and then transitioning into what it was to become. It's truly a love letter to the time in which it's set. And there is something magical about the 60s, uh, whether you were there for it or you weren't around for it. <clears throat> Neither you and I were but you can still appreciate it. There's two things about uh, this particular Tarantino movie that are something of appreciable value. If you weren't around that time, then maybe Charles Manson, let's say, is just something that you're kind of aware of, but you really don't know that much about what happened with the with the LaBianca Tate murders. Um, but then you find out, you you see something about this in the movie, well, how much is that, is that did that really happen? And then you start getting into Wikipedia or Google and read more about it, and then you find out more about it. And there's something to be said about that. No one's going to be an expert on everything that ever happened, major or unmajor. I wasn't all that familiar with the events of Dunkirk prior to uh, the Christopher Nolan movie. Then I did a little more reading about it. Yeah, that's actually kind of what happened. That's and it's real- an eye-opener. Oh, it's an eye-opener. That was really interesting. Okay, there, that's that's one of the beauties is it'll open up pages of true events. Or did Hitler really get shot in a movie theater? Uh, no, that was just something they did for their own Inglorious Bastards ending, but they came up with an alternative right. version of history. Didn't happen. 
But um, but the other thing is that what Tarantino weaves, whether it's sights or sounds or dialogue or even little nuances, he crafts a finely wrapped onion that you peel the layers of this onion, and there's so much to go. People are still talking about Pulp Fiction that came out 25 years ago. So here's a guy that we're going to dive into today. If you count Kill Bill 1 and 2 as one movie, then he's done nine directoral movies, and he says he's only going to do ten. Right. Which would mean that the next one, allegedly, is going to be the last movie he directs. And for a fairly youngish filmmaker, he's only mid-50s, I think he is right now, mid-55, 56, um, then he's going to be a, a lost voice. He says he won't go away completely, but uh, as far as directoral, something we're going to miss. One more quick note on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Another thing I enjoyed was was seeing a little bit more of what Sharon Tate's career was looking like at that time, of a, an ascending star who's still very down-to-earth and appreciating what, where she was getting to in terms of how her career had gotten to that point. And you certainly get to have a glimpse of that within the movie as well, of, of that particular piece too, of somebody who was gone too soon, who was making her way up through the, the industry more and more. And really, when I was reading into it more, had, has quite a story in terms of her background getting into Hollywood, a little bit shy and uncertain of herself, really, for different reasons when she was um, just getting started within Hollywood, but then becoming more and more assured of herself and becoming more and more of a star. And you start to see that a little bit more in the movie. But again, you'll have to see it for yourself. Yeah, so. from what I hear, it's a really good movie, and uh, the Margot Robbie does a good job in the role, too. Oh, yeah. We don't want to leave her out. And uh, So here we go, Tarantino. I mean, he's what is it about this guy that has really amassed such a following? And I don't think... Not all of his movies are as successful as one another, but not one of them has no contribution to the greater whole. A lot of Tarantino movies, it can be said that the the sum of the parts are more than just the parts themselves. They're more than just the sum of their parts. There's so much to them. And I think with Tarantino, you can almost look at any one of those movies and continually go. This is a yarn that continues to unravel. Go back to Reservoir Dogs, and it's still going to... I'll, I'll give you all kinds of, whether it's aesthetic things or influences on other things or the way that some music played with certain scenes. People are still talking about it to this day. Yeah, again, like I said, I have seen five out of his nine movies. I have not seen Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Death Proof, or Jackie Brown. Okay. Those, uh, so his first three movies and then, and then one in the mid-2000s with Death Proof. I have not seen... Those movies of his. I've seen all of his other ones to this point. Um, But those early ones really established the following. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs became like a cult following kind of movie. Like people who found that movie really latched on to it from a cult following perspective of, hey, this, you know, as an independent film, this really stuck. Pulp Fiction took Quentin Tarantino into the mainstream because... I believe it won the Palme d'Oro in at the the Cannes Film Festival that year. Did it not? Like I, they, I couldn't have to look. They promoted it as such. I think in the trailer Could for have. Pulp Fiction, which by the way is is a trailer that some regard as one of the best ever, especially with its use of music. Um, and then the movie itself was was obviously a smash hit and really put Tarantino onto 
the put Tarantino into the mainstream in terms of who this guy was and his movies and what he could do with them. And then using guys like John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson and a very varied cast with Uma Thurman and then uh, Bruce Willis also in there. Um, and then he had Christopher Walken. I mean, just really varied cast. And that movie really cemented him in a mainstream, widespread way, even if Reservoir Dogs started to build the following. Reservoir Dogs uh, came out in 92, by the way. And he had been involved in some movies behind the scenes and writing and that kind of thing. But Reservoir Dogs is considered by most people to be the, the true first Tarantino movie. Surely it was his first directorial effort. Um, but seeing his influence on earlier movies was limited. You, you didn't see as much. But Reservoir Dogs is where he put a stamp on things. And Hollywood, kind of like the 60s, was changing a little bit into the 90s. So here comes a completely different tone. You'd have a lot of uber violence in the 80s, but it was always the one-man army and the Schwarzeneggers and Stallones. Here's another, I wouldn't call it an action movie, but it's clearly violent. And the way that uh, the violence is depicted, one of the controversies that's around Quentin Tarantino that is very relevant in the today and now is gun violence. And there's a lot of it. and uh, But it's done stylistically yet brutally. You know, you've got uh, the, one of the big plot points with, with uh, Reservoir Dogs is here's one of the guys slowly dying through the course of the movie because they're going off of this robbery. And he comes back, he's been shot, and he's not looking very good. And throughout the course of the movie, he's slowly going down. Um, there's a torture scene in the movie where they've got the songs by Steeler's Wheel stuck in the middle with you, which is such a playful, happy, upbeat song. But that's playing during some hard-to-watch stuff. Oh. It's just kind of... It's the salt and the sweet together. It's just it's it's the bitter and the sweet. It's just it's a yin and a yang that just you wouldn't think go well together. But yeah. the way that they do is like it's unsettling. But that's kind of the idea. Yeah, and violence is such a centerpiece topic when Huge. you're talking about Quentin Tarantino, and it's it's either people can stomach it and handle it, and they understand, or they they see it as this is a piece of the movie, and this is a piece of of how he likes to do the movie, or they see it as, this is over the top, this is too much, this is... Which, you can really see it from, from either perspective. And you if you see it from the one or see it from the other, you can understand why you see it from that, because it is a lot, and yet at the same time, there's kind of a, a weird draw that seems to happen, or that people say, okay, this is... This is visually something that he uses in terms of how he shoots these films. And yet, sometimes people go, is it too much? Or is it going too far with watching, how much he uses it? Watching Kill Bill uh, 1 and 2, just kind of consider them the same movie as far as I'm concerned, uh, which basically it is. Um, it is so over the top, it's cartoonish. But that was intentional. And it is just a movie that... Well, they had to make a black and white scene yeah. when the bride is fighting against the ninja crew in the first movie just so they could make sure that it would get an R certification. Oh, yeah. they It's it's done extremely stylistic, almost like a comic book. and uh, But it is so over the top, it, I don't think it could exist without it. The way that it is shot, 
from the music, and some of it is the most bizarre. Where the heck did you even find this song from? Whether it's, um, I don't even know what the names of a lot of these songs are. Well, so used, much are so instrumental. They use Nobody But Me, which which is such a cheerful song, and I know The Office used it for a, a lip dub that during one of their show opens. But And it's so weird to hear a song like that in there, too, as as the bride is just carving her way through this these ninjas who are attacking her. Yeah, but... Yeah, using the music in that way, too, as, as you've got all this crazy violence going on. So something interesting happened when he had his next movie come out, and you've got and Tarantino usually, not always, but usually pops up in his movies in an acting role. He does in Pulp Fiction. He does in, uh, in Reservoir Dogs and some others, too. Um, but he, he wanted to be an actor, and you could see him trying to do it. And he's, he's respectable as an actor. He's not bad. Uh, some memorable parts. But clearly his forte was getting things done behind the scenes. But one of the interesting things was Pulp Fiction is his second movie. It came out in 1994. And you have a very respectable cast, even though a lot of them were kind of sliding a little bit in their standings. John Travolta hadn't had a hit in almost five years, and he had just that one flash in the pan with Look Who's Talking uh, and then all the sequels from that. Look who's talking. The third, fourth, you know. and Bruce Willis. You know his times from Die Hard was starting to slide. Hudson Hawk had come out, and I think Death Becomes or had come out, and he was losing some of his box office luster. Then you got the upcoming Samuel Jackson, who's Uma Thurman at that point, and you get these guys that got a career resurgence and a lot of very respectable character actors that decided to show up that just loved the script. Tarantino got people's attention with Reservoir Dogs. The dialogue in particular, the way that he shot things, and so when this guy that had just directed this movie, I heard about this guy, they were willing to take a look and get into it, and so you start running into some fairly well-known faces, even if they just pop in and pop out, for, for a movie that really is its own genre. I don't know how to define Pulp Fiction. I really don't. It's got comedy elements to it. It's got drama elements to it. It's got some action elements to it. It's got revenge elements to it. And I mean, it's it's hard to pigeonhole. What well, what kind of movie is it? I don't know. And see, that's what I think set the tone for what was to come throughout Tarantino's filmography, as we've seen it so far. Is the way that he. He may have one genre in particular that he is really centering the movie around. Take, for instance, the martial arts style, almost B-movie type feel to Kill Bill with the way that he, he goes with that. And yet, there are other genres that are interlaced within that are also connected and, and could also be attached to it as well. But the way that he weaves together so many different genres of movie and ones that have permeated through the decades of movie making. And he tries to weave them in with the way that he does that particular film. And I think Pulp Fiction set the tone of blending all of those things together. And not just blending genre, blending plot. Because there are several different plot elements that are going on at the same time in Pulp Fiction. And somehow they all end up becoming interconnected. Yeah, and another big part of that that has become largely a hallmark in, I think, the majority of Tarantino movies, not all of them, is that the storytelling, the chronology is so disjointed. It jumps all over the place. Yes. For example... Um, Even though he uses chapters to try yeah. to... 
but break it's t- it all up. It's telling it in such a way that when you stand back and look at it from a distance, it all makes sense. I mean, in Glorious ba- or uh, 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 Hateful Eight, for example, they're all showing up at this, what is supposed to be a really great come on in and hang out, but it's very despondent. And then at the end, you find out why, because all these bad guys had come in and shot everybody up. And so everybody that's there, they're not just a weary traveler. There's a lot more going on that you didn't know. They show it disjointed. In Pulp Fiction, uh, you have the just a very human, could happen to anybody if you were in this kind of situation moment where Bruce Willis is trying to break into his house and get something back before he goes on the run. And it just so happens that the hitman, uh, John Travolta, just happened to need to go to the bathroom at that point. And when he did, Bruce Willis found the gun and blew him away. And two scenes later, John Travolta's back up and walking around in a scene that was taking place earlier in the movie. So it just, it's it's an interesting kind of a disjointed, and that's one of his hallmarks, is that it's not a linear plot. It's a linear in that the way the story is told, and I would think Pulp Fiction probably the least connect or the most disjointed of them all it's all over the map rick and nick talk flicks is sponsored by the bemidji theater we're talking all things quentin tarantino today and there's a lot to unpack when we're talking quentin tarantino and you know one of the things dave about tarantino and we kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier tarantino with the way that he makes movies has courted controversy with the way that he goes about making them and Certainly, violence has been part of it. Language has been another part of it as well. You mentioned earlier about you know use of use of some words, and and in particular, I mean how often he uses like the f word or something. But even from a racial standpoint too, that's been part of it as well. I know in Django oh, yeah. Unchained there was controversy about how much there were the n word was used within that particular movie, and he's tried to use it from a you know, from a, a storytelling standpoint of that place, that setting, that time, and yet there were many who said, "Well, this is this is too much." You know, you're using this word way too much with within the movie as well. So there's there's been controversy in terms of you know he does he does really put you into the setting, but on on the other hand, how much is pulling you into the setting with how often you know particular words get used? How okay is that? As well, and he's courted controversy for that too. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a sensitive topic to get into, but the defense has always been, and I've agreed with it that it's you know whether it's good or it's bad, it is. So to pretend that the word doesn't exist or that violence doesn't exist or these facets of life don't exist is just disingenuous. It's not true. It does happen. People say it on the street. There's any number of other movies that you can watch where words like the N-word are being thrown around, and for those people, perfectly okay. Those people on the street corner that are saying it in real life, perfectly fine with them, whether we agree with it or not, it is. So if you're watching a movie that is about slavery in a lot of ways, and a freed slave coming to free his wife, and you don't hear that word at some point with a slave master talking to the people, you'd think, well, what's really disingenuous is that it was, for lack of a better term, whitewashed. You know, if you got to be accurate to the time, you got to be truthful to things. While we don't condone it, you can't necessarily look at the past through the lens of today and judge it. Right. At least at the time. You can certainly say, well, that's where we were. Here's where we are. We're better today than we were then. Yes, absolutely. You'd like to think anyway. But here in 2019, when we're recording this, that word is still shouted on street corners across America. So, yeah. You don't condone it. 
but it is. And yet it's it's tough, much in the same way that the violence piece with his movies is, is that how much is too much? You know, how much can you really can you really handle or how when when does it come to the point where this is being overused or overdone in that way? And that's been that's been one of the questions that has been raised in the past, you know, and, and it comes down to then everybody's perception on the matter and there's there's a wide range of perceptions on hey this is it's part of it's part of the way that he makes movies or wait a minute this is still not really the way to go about doing it well you got to look at the whole of it i mean if you look at pulp fiction for example arguably maybe his greatest work it's the one that people remember him for um it'll be on his tombstone i'll bet you he directed pulp fiction you know it's it, people really, really gather to that movie. But when you stop and look at all the nuances of it, there are things in that movie that are straight up disturbing. There's an anal rape in that movie. You know, it's there. But do people dwell on the gimp scene? Not necessarily. They're looking at great performances and great dialogue. Is there violence? You bet. But are there great moments? What was in that suitcase? What was that light? What do you think? People take away other parts from it. It really is what you want to focus on. Is it the stuff that it makes you kind of wince when you look at it, make you want to look away? Or is it the stuff that you're just drawn to and you can't help? This was a movie that was so not a movie that my dad would watch, but he watched it and he could see the enjoyment. He was like, that was interesting. And then you realize later, I just sat through a movie with my dad that had a, an anal rape scene with a gimp in it, you know? And, and see, we both enjoyed it. Yeah, and see, that's that stuff, which is why I haven't seen all of his movies, because it's like there are some things that are just, they're tough they're tough for me to watch or they're, they're stuff that I just am like, yeah, that's, that's a bit too much. And that's kind of the, the, the seesaw that exists with a director like Tarantino who really pushes the edges and works on the edges of the way he makes his movies. And with, with stuff like that, sometimes it's, it's too much for some people. And then other times it's like, can't, can you focus on other parts of the movie and, and really strengthen them rather than, this element, but it's it's kind of the the balance that he plays, the balancing act. You know, it depends on what you're looking for. It depends on what's going to resonate with you. I'll give you a, a completely sterile example. You can walk down the main street of any town in this country, and you're going to see what you choose to see. You're going to see a great, sleepy little town that's got so much potential and so many things going for it. Or you're going to walk down and see dirty, and you're going to see homeless, and you're going to see graffiti, and you're going to see the things that are crime. Le- crime. You're going to see things that are less good to see. Or you're going to walk down the street, and you're going to see both. You're going to see, well, this town's yeah. got its issues, it's got its problems, it's got some clean, but look what it's got. It's got this, it's got that. It's what do you choose to take from it? And that's one of the best things about Tarantino. I mentioned earlier the suitcase, which is in Pulp Fiction, which you won't understand the reference, but uh, one of the whole storylines is about this suitcase they're recovering for Marcellus Wallace. Well, what's in it? Well, every time they open it, you don't see what's in it. You just see this golden light come out of it. And when they filmed it, all it was was a light bulb that was in there. <laughs> but, but what are they? What is it representing? Some of the theories are it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. Maybe it's gold. Maybe it's who knows what it is. It's not ever said. It's for you to wonder. Yeah. And that's the same thing with a Tarantino movie. It is whatever you want it to be. If you want it to be his soul, fine. It's his soul. If you want it to be a movie that's way too violent, then it will be. And some of those movies, um, um, oh, I'm having a brain for here. I can't think of the name of the movie here. Uh, Django Unchained. 
Uh, I've seen it twice. I, it's, it is excessively violent about some parts that, I mean, if I don't see it again, I'll be just fine with it. But Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards, yeah, I'll watch those again, no problem. But, you know, there's a fight where the two slaves are having a big fight in front of the fireplace for sport that just, for me, it was just a little too over the, the line. For me, for my taste. And I can handle me some violence. But for me, that one just kind of, on other notes too, just hit a hit a hit a chord. That, and, it, and again, that's the Tarantino complex. Yeah, and that, that's and part that's, of it. And that's fine. That's part of it. Sometimes it's not easy to watch, but so many of them are. The only, by the way, I should go on record. The only Tarantino movie I've not seen is Jackie Brown. That's it. Okay. All the rest I've seen, and uh, except for Once Upon a Time, that's still I have a window for that one. If I go too much longer, I'll say I, I have to add that to the list. Right. But before this weekend is over, I will see it. So it's, you know, it depends on what you want to see. If you want to see something and be shocked and awed, you will. If you want to see layers of pop culture, especially from the 70s that get in there, uh, he's a big fan of the 70s. You can tell that's where he grew up because it's all over all of those movies. Even if it's in the 60s, I would think he's probably got some 70s in there. And the 70s really influenced his creation of Kill Bill because of the martial arts B-movie type of of feel. Plus, there's even some animated portions that are within Kill Bill as well. You get you get all kinds of 70s filmmaking styles that you see there, especially influenced by Japanese films, by mixed martial arts type films, or martial arts films really in particular. Um, and all of them centered around Uma Thurman's bride and, and her character within Kill Bill um, Volumes 1 and 2. I mean, that's how expansive the movie was, that it was filmed all together but then released a couple of months apart well, with Volumes 1 and 2. It was going to be one movie. and he took, But it would have been over four hours. That's why there's two parts. He became very, well, I don't want to cut this, and I don't want to cut that. And I, well, the heck with this. There's too much good. We're cutting it in half. We're going to do two versions. But that was always the plan, that it was going to be one long movie before he realized, you can't do that. Do you think there's one that is distinctly better than the other? I kind of like the first part better, but I consider... That's what a lot of people say. I consider the whole movie, both of them, one movie. You know, I kind of consider Back to the Future all three one movie, because it's really one big story told in three parts. Well, Kill Bill was intended to be one movie. So I think it was when they decided they were going to do two parts. They filmed the scene with her in the car, kind of recapping, and that's about it. Yeah, you know, it's it's one story, one movie, really, if you think about it. Um, just one long movie. I think part of what gives Volume One a leg up is the is the particular battle that the bride has with Lucy Liu's um, ninja ninja troop, essentially. Um, I think that's part of what gives the first volume a leg up, just with the way that was shot visually. Um, there are some portions, like the, the the portion where all you see are their silhouettes within that battle. You know, with that, the black and white portion of it, too, the and how crazy over the top that was, the music, like we were talking about earlier. Um, I think that's part of what gives that movie a leg up, is that people were like, whoa to that that whole volume there with the second one it becomes more about individual battles and individual vendettas that take place there plus she spends a lot of time in the bride does in a coffin in that second movie too and then of course you see some background on how she finds a way to be able to bust out of it as well yeah i think also you you're not really sure what kill bill is going to be 
until you more or less get to that ninja battle, you realize just how over the top this is going to get. Yeah. You know, it's 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 clearly Quentin Tarantino all the way through, and then it hits overdrive with the ninja fight. You're like, whoa. Oh, he just lost an entire limb, and he's spraying all over the room. Okay, this is going to be a little cartoonish. And then, of course, it's a revenge flick. So you start building up the prelude to the revenge, which to me is always the more interesting of it rather than the act itself. And I'm trying to remember how many of that crew get killed off in the first one. Is it just Lucy Liu, or is that she's the second? Well, one? there's also um, the movie opens with uh, the bride. That's right. Uh, with the bride going to uh, Vernita, the house, yeah, and to to her house with the daughter, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's right. Yeah, Vivica Fox. Yeah, and, and she goes there. So, so then you've got the very very end, and you've got you know you've got she finally is meeting up with Bill, and you're thinking it's going to be some ginormous showdown, and it really kind of in some ways is anticlimactic when you compare it to visually what had come before. Well, I think that was I think that was part of the point, yeah, right? That with, was the point. It was getting there that was really the yeah. the big piece. Yeah. Yeah. But it was but story-wise it, it made a lot of sense. It was a great movie. And if you think about it, before that Tarantino had made a movie in like five years, something like that. I think it was Jackie Brown, came out in 97. 97, and then Kill Bill Volume 1 was 2003. 2003, so that's a while. People are like, well, is he done? Is he all done? He just, he kind of took his break, but clearly he was percolating. Well, there was a lot of planning going on in that oh, time. Oh, yeah. Like, Inglorious apparently had been in the works for a long time, but he put that on hold then to work on Kill Bill. I, I remember reading that he he viewed Inglorious as what was going to be his masterpiece as, that he was working on, but he worked on Kill Bill then and really got into that. And then Death Proof followed in 2007, which was more on the horror side of things. You almost have to look at that as a half movie in a way because it was a double bill with Planet Terror, with he and uh, Rodriguez. Which was, they were both good movies. They were fun. They were very, I mean, like you talk about the homage to the 70s, those right there, yeah. those kind of grindhouse movies were most definitely 70s-esque. But yeah, it's 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 kind of a slasher movie uh, mixed with Christine, that, you know, that uh, Stephen King story. And then we come to Inglorious in 2009, and and this movie got him back into the hunt for like some major awards like back in and Christoph Waltz in particular won an Academy Award came out of nowhere yeah and he that put him on the map in a big way you've got Brad Pitt talking with this really funny accent that he's got in the movie and especially when he's trying to talk Italian as well it got really funny with, with that piece too but what a what a fascinating movie that was actually until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came along, I would have said that was definitely my favorite Tarantino movie. Now it's a you, little bit more of a toss-up. How do you pitch that? What's the movie going to be about, Quentin? Uh, killing Nazis. No, really. No, really. Killing Nazis and scalping them. What? Yeah. 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 Kind of crazy. And yeah. then, again, an alternate history take yeah. on the end of World War II and, and with taking down Hitler and they this coming together of these two different plots to do so. Um, and... Again, he uses film at the center of it as well, and this comes up again in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, really, the way he uses film, and talks about, it's a kind of a subplot within the movie, but the use of film as propaganda, which is a piece of the movie as well with um, the, the German soldier who they call the German Sergeant York, and creating a movie about his exploits um, and his sniping exploits, and how that becomes the film that gets shown within the film. And 
I believe Eli Roth was a big part of making that movie happen I think within he the movie. That part. Yes, yeah, and and put that together. Um, and of course, he stars uh, in the movie as uh, Don- the Bear Killer. Yeah, Donnie Donowitz um, in that movie, and or Antonio Margariti, if you if you prefer. Um, so he, yeah, so he um, put that together, and it's funny how that became kind of like a. A, a sub piece of it of like propaganda film and use of that. And then looking at it from a world war two perspective as well. Yeah. And d- like you said, again, it's an alternative take on things, but it's funny seeing one of the world's worst monsters like Adolf Hitler shown as a comedic oaf periodically throughout that movie. And of course he meets his demise, not accurate to history of course, but it's satisfying to see it happen. I think one of the one of the most amazing opening sequences I've ever seen in a movie is the opening of that movie where, you know, Colonel Landa, you know, Christoph Waltz goes to the family's home and just menacing and you know something's going to go down and this girl is watching it through the cracks in the floor, gets away and then of course she gets her revenge later in the movie. Shoshana. Yep. Shoshana. But uh, there are some who who say that that opening scene is one of their favorites it's a movie in in and of itself it really really is if the movie ended right there you'd almost be like wow that is artistic and interesting i wonder where it will go from there the way it's shot the menacing way in which christoph waltz's character hans landa peels away the onion of of getting to the point of him being there and systematically getting getting into the mind of Monsieur Lapadite, who is having him there, um, and who is, is housing these Jews who Landa is coming for, um, and he, he just slowly combs it back, and, and you just realize, oh, man, he's he's really getting to him here. And relishes in doing it with a yeah. huge smile. He's candy-coated evil. Having milk. Yeah. Well, yeah, all, all of the above. Yeah, and it sets the tone for the, the rest of the movie and just how menacing his character was and yet at the same time how multi-layered his character was because you really see that come to the forefront later on in the movie too um actually the way that humor is is pieced into that movie is is really amusing as well one of my favorite scenes is when um bridget von hammersmark uh comes to the movie premiere um and she's got the the italian the quote-unquote italians from um from uh, Aldo Rain's unit. He's she has them with him, and of course her foot has been has been shot and wounded from this uh, this blow up at a bar that happened. And so she's trying to explain it, and she says that she was in a climbing accident, and uh, Landa was there at the bar and found her napkin that she had left to one of the German soldiers who was there. So he knows that she's lying and he says a climbing accident. And then his over the top laughter in hysterics in, in front of this whole crowd as he turns away and is trying to, to contain himself is great. And you see like Brad Pitt turn and look over, um, at Von Hammersmark who, who was played, who was played there in the movie by, um, by Diane Kruger, it, it, he's looking at her, going, "Oh boy, we're in trouble." <laughs> it's just, it's so funny. Like you get some humor mixed in there too, all while you've got this sometimes serious story that's happening as well. Oh yeah, there. You know, every one of those stories is not to be taken lightly. We're talking revenge flicks. We're talking about killing Nazis. We're talking about freeing slaves. We're talking about 
uh, trying to make your way through Hollywood amongst the backdrop of the Manson murders, there's they're all serious. Yeah. But one of the things we haven't really touched on yet is that he's got such a panache for language. Language, and, and I think Tarantino and George Carlin come together in this. They were so students of language. Don't use words that aren't as descriptive as they should be. Don't be afraid to use bigger words. Don't be afraid to let the, the audience wonder what exactly you just said. They'll figure it out if they're intelligent enough or care enough. And isn't that, don't you think, how Christoph Waltz became as successful as he was, yes. like being in Tarantino-type movies? He can't, well, tell me a movie he was in before that. Since then, now he's Blofeld in Bond movies. He's done two Tarantino movies. Plus, I think that's why Leonardo DiCaprio has thrived in, oh, yeah. in these movies that he's been in with Tarantino as well. Another guy who can really take hold of a scene that way with the way he delivers lines and with the language he uses. Yeah. And, and commit to it. There's one scene in Django Unchained where he slams his hand on the table and it's known that he's broke a glass doing it and cut the heck out of his hand. And he's bleeding profusely. And that's not in the script. That actually happened in real life. And he just kept going with the scene. And then they bandaged his hand for the movie. And that's a real legitimate oops. But yeah. he, he didn't break like, oh, I... Quentin, I, I hurt my hand. He kept going, and there's blood spraying, and it was not a prosthetic effect. He actually cut his hand doing it, and they left it in the scene. It's it's in the movie. Yeah. So that's you know you get a lot of actors that really just want to go and chew the scenery and on meaningful stuff, and they they're falling over themselves to be a part of a Tarantino movie. Anyone and everybody. The interesting thing about Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight is that they were two different styles of Western movie oh, yeah. that Tarantino put together. One is a spaghetti Western set in the South and and set around slavery. The other is a true Western that also has an element of a standoff to it as well. well one thing you'd said earlier was Tarantino really wants you, when you go see his movies, is to experience his vision. One of the things he wanted to do with The Hateful Eight was he wanted this movie in as big and bold a theater as you could possibly get it into. Wasn't it like 70 millimeters or something yes. like that? Which is ridiculously huge. He, he had an overture at the beginning. Yeah. He had a intermission. Like in certain theaters where the movie opened, he, he had it so that it was an old-time spaghetti Western feel with the way – and an old-time epic Western feel with the way that he – added those elements in and it was a movie that you have to see on the biggest screen possible to really yeah. take in with the snowstorm and yet at the same time he brings it down to a very intimate setting then with the place where everybody is is shut in because yeah. of the storm and then you have this this whole plot that unfurls itself within that setting yeah you know the interesting thing was most theaters don't do uh 70 millimeters so that was, he was i'm only going to release it in 70 millimeters it's going to be on the right screen it turned out there was only like four screens in the country or something like that that would have shown in. So what he a shame. He had to relent <laughs> a little bit. But, you know, for those of you that weren't around, and that includes me, they used to put intermissions in the middle of movies. They'd have yes. a title card up for, say, five minutes or whatever. You could go run to the bathroom quick and go get another drink and come back, and the show would go right back on with a countdown the whole way. I'm going to see Lawrence of Arabia in theaters here in a couple of weeks because they're showing it for um, TCM's big screen classics. And this has been years in the making that I've been waiting to see this movie on the big screen. And I am curious if they're going to do that with that movie. Because, yeah, Tarantino, it, at certain theaters, he did get it that way where yeah. they were able to do it with an old-style movie release. Yeah. 
it's, you know, he likes to kind of the way that we've got movies nowadays we've talked about. It's the way we're consuming movies and now it's all being streamed and it's on devices and it's not being taken in the way that you're going to be immersed. And there's something about the immersive experience that you just don't get in a lot of the modern ways that movies are shown. And he is most definitely a fan, ardent fan of the immersion experience. If he can get it in 70 millimeter, he wants it. If he's going to put an intermission, a big break in the middle of the movie, well, that's the way they used to do it. And he doesn't want that art completely gone. Plus, there was sort of something, I don't know if magical is the right word, but something about that that he didn't want gone. He wanted to have something, a part of his own repertoire that he could include in that. There's something to be said about what he does from the past that he brings into the future, whether it's stylistic into the movie or just straight up the way that those movies are shown and presented. Now, when it comes to Quentin Tarantino, you may have varying perspectives on Tarantino and the way that he does his movies. And really, again, like we said earlier, that's kind of the way he is. He courts a wide range of feelings and perspectives on how he does his movies. But at the same time, he is a director who who is creative. Oh, extremely. Very creative. And you know, part you know, one of the one of the other interesting things that's worth talking about with him is is his connection with Harvey Weinstein and the fact that he made he made movies alongside Weinstein and now of course he broke ties as soon as all the the news came out about Weinstein. I mean, Tarantino, he he broke ties off pretty quickly from, you know, the Weinstein company and and everything. Um, in fact, Sony Pictures and and um, Columbia, that was who he was running once upon a time in Hollywood through. And that's a, an important piece to add as well is that he, you know, he worked with Harvey Weinstein. But as soon as all this broke, I mean, he he broke off pretty quick from from any attachment to it, although I don't think he really had any any inkling on that did he or at least he he said he didn't really have much of an inkling on it you know there's a lot of people that we know that you don't know and you can certainly judge somebody by the company that he keeps but there's professional and there's personal and i think they kind of were some sort of a hybrid there they didn't have that kind of a good relationship if you weren't to something more than just strictly colleagues but you know clearly tarantino is got a lot of female empowerment in his movies i mean you do not have a lot of weak female characters some of them yes but some of them are iconic i mean even just leave the bride out of it you still have plenty of others that are in there carrying their own weight that are doing kind of scenes that you don't see a lot of women do and so he, melanie loren in particular yeah that's another good in one in inglorious i mean as shoshana she was really really good in that yeah. movie i just watched that movie back the other day and i mean it her her character in particular is just i mean haunting really good oh in yeah that movie. Ex- yep. exceptionally yes good. and haunting especially in that at the very end at the yeah. very end she yep. reveals herself and it's almost ghostly the way that it's done yes so you know he clearly is got a, a good strong heart for female empowerment and uh, and I'm in favor of that too. And he's clearly not done much to hold things down. Uh, even if things do go sideways, there was the incident Uma Thurman during a shot of uh, I think it was Kill Bill. Oh got a, yeah, she didn't want to do it. He forced her to do it for the look, and it didn't turn out so well. But if there was such an issue, they still would not be friends, and they're still buddies. So I mean, things can happen. But if you find out that the person next to you is Hitler, and you're not into that, you're going to distance yourself pretty quick. 
So creativity is, like I was saying, it's one of those things that seems to permeate through all his movies. And again, you can you can question the way in which he, he goes about doing that. But one of the things that has made him stick is that he is a director who who thinks outside the box when it comes to movie making. There are a select few directors who exist in today's movie making who are people who people will come to watch their movies. They are appointment directors and they will go see their movies. Steven Spielberg has certainly been one for a long time. Christopher Nolan is a guy who has ascended into that kind of that kind of realm. Quentin Tarantino has absolutely been one of those directors who people will go see the new Tarantino film. They'll no they'll go what see it that. Is. Yep. You, you promote it like once upon a time in Hollywood it says very clearly the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino and that is immediately a bell that is being signaled to people of okay this is a movie where I'm I'm going to go check this out because he's directing it. There aren't that many people, Dave, in in today's Hollywood who have that kind of clout. Quentin Tarantino is one of them and mainly because when you go see one of his movies, you know he's going to be doing something stylistically in particular with that movie. Scorsese is probably another one, right? I mean, he's got his type of fans who watch his movies. And I know there are only a select few who have that, but Tarantino has got that. Oh, un- undoubtedly. I mean, absolutely. And he's done, he's done it his own way. Everybody else has got a spin on the way they do it, and they're kind of mainstream, and they've got their own touch and spin. They do. Tarantino yep. is his own, like I said, how do you define what Pulp Fiction is? Unpredictable. It's yep. not even unpredictable. What's his genre? What kind of movies does he make? Uh, well, um, how do you define them? I mean, you just you just can't. They run the gamut, and what they are, what they're known for is they're very stylistic. They tend to be very violent. They have amazing dialogue. Even the cinematography is something interesting, even if it is to have sort of a point-and-shoot approach to it. It's not as simple as that. There's a, it's a, he directs onions. You just got to unpeel these onions, and years, 25 years after Pulp Fiction, they're still unraveling that onion. So they're extremely well put together. So... Man, he's got a, he's got a, he's a, he's going to be one of those guys that's his own genre. He's going to be his own thing, his own stamp. There will never be another Tarantino. There just won't be. There will be people that will do their own thing, maybe in the vein that Tarantino did theirs, maybe taking some inspiration from what Quentin has laid out. But there will never be. There can't. I mean, this guy is such a unique personality, visionary, keep going down the list. He is his own thing. There is no, nor will there be another. Tarantino. And that kind of brings us to the next thing, which will be a nice segue into the end. He says he's got 10 movies in him. And if you consider Kill Bill 1 and 2 as one movie, that means that the next one will be the last one. Um, And what exactly will that be? And funny enough, there's talk that it might be a Star Trek movie. Because he's a big fan, apparently. He's a big Star Trek fan. Apparently he had pitched to J.J. Abrams that currently has the reins of Star Trek right now. Uh, I've got an idea with Kirk and Spock. Now, whether this was involved the Kelvinverse universe, which is the crew from the newest movies, or not, um, don't really know. The weird thing about that would be when you step into a universe like Star Trek, which has already been established, you're kind of confining yourself in some ways within that universe. I, I wonder how much he would be able to do creatively compared to his other movies. Plus, 
Can you use the repertory of actors and actresses who you have commonly used in previous films and who you've brought back over and over again? Can you drop them in in cameo roles hey, in something like that? I'm sure you you could come up with a way, but like it almost feels too confined to do a Star Trek type movie because he'd be confined to the Star Trek universe then. But he's a fan, and it matters yes, to him. He's a fan, and as far as the actors go, I'll bet you yes. I'll bet you, you get Shatner back. I'll bet you get everybody back because everybody wants to work with Tarantino. And a lot of these people have already come out and said, yeah, I'd be willing to you know, come back for a Tarantino movie. So who knows? Maybe it would be one of those things where it's, pun intended for you Star Trek fans, the best of both worlds. You get people coming from everywhere. You start and you do your own standalone movie. It's not necessarily a sequel, but it would exist within the confines and I'll bet you, as unconventional as it would be, it would probably be a hard R Star Trek where Spock might drop an Effenheimer. I would be willing to bet it would be a good movie, a very, very different kind of a Star Trek movie, but I'll bet you it would be most definitely interesting. He's a huge fan. He knows how to tell a story. He knows how it works. He's not looking to betray some of the characters, which we've talked about, with like things like Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Um I think it would be uh, the black sheep of the Star Trek family, but who doesn't like a good black sheep? Well, he hasn't stepped into the space realm yet or into nope. the space movie realm, of co- which has certainly had its own genre in science fiction. He hasn't really stepped into that very much. So, Well, but here's the other thing, though. He's not writing the movie, so, so to speak. He pitched the idea, so he's come up with a story. And there's writing team that's working on it. Now, would Tarantino just leave it at that and somebody else directs it? That's a distinct possibility. It is, because would he's he... talked about doing writing after yeah. he's done with making movies. Oh, and, and he, he will. He'll be involved to some degree, but will he direct according to what he's saying? No, but who knows? Would he direct the Star Trek movie? He could. He's not deciding one way or the other. Honestly, I don't see him going out on a Star Trek movie, but wouldn't that just be the way for Tarantino to do it? Some You never know what he's going to be doing, unpredictable. So here's a guy that did Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards wrapping it up on a Star Trek. You know that. Well, I guess that would be kind of Tarantino-esque. So it depends on, uh, this could really go either way. But will it happen? I bet you it does. I bet you it does come forward, uh, whether he directs it or he just simply pitches the idea. And then others run with it, and he goes off and does his own thing. I think that's probably the most likely, but who knows? Could be interesting. I am really, really intrigued if it's ever actually going to happen. What if they bring back Khan, and it's Khan and Kirk again, and they get a really good actor that can do it that's actually, you know, Indian or Hispanic, you know, like like Ricardo Montalban and Les uh, Cumberbatch. And I mean, could you imagine the dynamic, especially with Tarantino behind the lens, what that would be? Imagine getting Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, done by Tarantino. I just can't wrap my mind around it. I can't wrap my mind around it. I, I'd have to see it to really see how he... I, I, how would he do it? Like, Can he restrain himself no. from the type of movie that he has done in the past no. to what this would be? No, this would be a completely different Star Trek movie of which I can't imagine there ever being a sequel to it. It's going to be a one-off. Because you'd have to be. How, uh, yeah. how are you going to do a sequel to yeah. a Tarantino movie without Tarantino? You don't. You just leave it alone. Let it be its own thing. But will that be the final chapter for Tarantino, at least as a director? Maybe. Uh, I have a feeling not, but who knows? Filmmaking takes a lot out of you, though. That's He has said as much. Well, there's a reason he's only going to do 10 movies. 
So it's, it's, it's not because he doesn't have anything else to say. Clearly he does. But what about when the creative juices get going again? That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. This is a guy that when he is gone and, I mean, even passed away, his movies will live on forever. They really don't mark a time. They really don't mark a, an, an era, per se. They are their own era. Even if they're set in, say, 1969, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they are their own thing. He goes everywhere from the Old West to current day. How do you have a timestamp there? Yep. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. And we're glad to have them aboard as a sponsor of the podcast for the over 50 episodes that we have done of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. You got to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, man. Before the weekend, I will. I am really looking forward to talking with you about it after you see it because, again, I really enjoyed it. I've seen it twice now, and it's, like I said, it's more than just a movie about the movies. It's a movie about the time period. And for us who are in radio, I enjoyed the radio element that came with it. Well, we had to take the kiddo to see Toy Story 4 first, and we finally did. So now we can move on to more adult fare. And we will not be taking him to see Once Upon a Time. Uh, that's a good idea. Good call. He good wouldn't call. be allowed in anyway. Thank goodness yeah. we saw a Toy Story, not the other doll movie with Chucky. Yes. Thank goodness. We got the, we got the poster <laughs> right. Amen. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies. <laughs>